If you're joining us online or here for the first time, we're right in the middle of a seven-week teaching series through Revelation called B, where we're looking at seven letters that Jesus wrote to first-century churches now located in modern-day Turkey. And I just want to remind our church, both online and here in person, we we have created these B guides for your own personal study. Uh, They're not just for people that are in life groups, although our groups are going through this, but they're for everybody. And, you know, as I mentioned before, the, the natural tendency I think in this season is to drift. And so if, if you're like me, when I'm drifting, I, if it's not in front of me, I'm not going to do it. Uh, so I want to encourage you to grab one of these on your way out or go on our website, rccsalem.com B. You can download a PDF version of the guide uh, as well. Here's the map of the seven cities we've been looking at. John uh, is the author. He's sitting on the island Patmos. Uh, he's, um, he's on the island with all the other misfits. It's what the Roman, when Rome occupied Patmos, that's where they would put uh, those folks in exile. And, he, and through, um, Jesus is using John to write seven letters to seven churches, which is in Asia Minor, but modern day uh, Turkey. And we've, we've gone from Ephesus to Smyrna, Pergamum, and today we're going to be in Thyatira. And Jesus says that every, every church, every city has a light, which is to say that every church has influence. Everybody uh, can affect somebody and affect change, whether for good or for bad. And the reason why we're calling this series B is because Jesus gives each church a charge to be better, to grow in a specific area. And if the church doesn't do that, Jesus says your influence will be taken away from you. And let me tell you something. Uh, I've sat in some church consulting rooms with, um, I wasn't doing the consulting, I was just a fly on the wall. It is a hard conversation when the church consultant looks at the church and their leadership team and says, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You're dead. And that's what Jesus tells us in the church, that if you don't grow into these attributes, I'm going to take away your influence. If you needed uh, to uh, sort of check out Ephesus, you'd probably need a day and a half to two days. Here's a photo of Thyatira. You would need about five minutes, <laughs> a lunch break. This is it. Uh, if you were to zoom out, you would see modern day uh, Thyatira, modern day uh, Turkey. Uh, it takes all about five minutes. Um, I won't say who, but a friend of a friend in ministry got there too late, couldn't pay the ticket. So they jumped the very low fence to get some film and and got out of there before the Turkish government found them. Turkey, or I'm sorry, Thyatira is not really something that you would write home about. Um, I don't have a lot of pictures today. I know some of you are bummed. You've been enjoying that. Thyatira is sort of that uh, city where it's just sort of like down the middle of nowhere. But it probably or potentially had the most amount of impact or potential for impact. See, Thyatira was uh, sort of seated on what we would call like maybe a modern-day interstate exchange. You remember, parents, you're driving your kids, you're somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you don't really know where you're at. This is pre-like MapQuest. Forget iPhones, pre-MapQuest, right? You had to have like an atlas, or, like those sort of things. And your kids are like, are we there yet? I'm hungry, are we there yet? And you, you know, turn around the bend, and you see all of these highways or interstates, and then there's this like little town, and it's like seven big box chain stores. You got like a you got like a Long John Silver's and a KFC. Why that partnership exists, I don't know. There's a McDonald's, a Burger King, and hopefully if God favors that town, there's a Chick-fil-A. Let's pause for a moment. Okay, moving on. And then there's like a Walmart. But past that, there's nothing. Like that is the economy, so to speak, right? 
But Thyatira also had a lot of influence because it was seated in those two, what we call interstates or highways, but in the first century, they were two major trade routes. So influence and economy and commerce were going in and out of this little town. Now, Thyatira, you would, you would um, probably classify this city as a, or this town as a blue-collar town. Uh, in the Midwest, we would say that um, in, in Thyatira, there, there's good people there. They're just good people. They work hard. Uh, their hands are calloused and worn. I don't know if you do this or not. Maybe not. It might be creepy. But sometimes if you look at somebody's hands, like you can tell maybe what job they've had or if they're worn or cracked. Maybe, maybe they do more manual labor. I would have probably been from Ephesus. I have preacher hands. They're very soft. Um, I don't really pick things up and put them down. But in Thyatira, they were hardworking, blue-class, blue uh, Jesus-loving people identified by these guys, the trade guild. I talked about this in week one with Ephesus. The trade guild was... Uh, was um, ran and owned by the Roman Empire, so you had to pay dues to your trade guild. This would affect the economy of the government, so forth and so on. Uh, today, we, when we meet somebody new in exchange pleasantries, we'd say, my name's Ben, what's your name? And then we tend to ask, what do you do for a living? In Thyatira, you could ask, where do you live? Because where you live indicated what you did for a living. In other words, if you were a basket weaver, you would live in the neighborhood of basket weavers. If you... Uh, uh, like in um, Acts 16, if you remember uh, Lydia, uh, by the way, uh, Thyatira was known for their purple dye and making clothes. Um, and this is really cool, ladies, that it, had it not been for Lydia and other um, strong-willed, um, dominant uh, uh, entrepreneurial ladies, uh, Paul's journeys, missionary journeys, would have not been paid for. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, also, they were known for their bronze making. I know this isn't bronze, but you know. Church budget, okay? Um, and, and so wherever you lived or whatever you did for a living, uh, that indicated where you actually lived. So Jesus, what makes this city different, Jesus does have something to say about the church. That's where the word Jezebel comes in. But the punishment is more related to the trade guild. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them or look at your Bible app, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. This is the opening of the letter. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, that you are now doing more than you have done or ever did at first. So every letter, Jesus identifies himself in a way that is meaningful to the church, Here's where you're doing well in. Here's what you need to improve on. Except for the city uh, last weekend, there was nothing that Jesus said you need to improve on. Just keep doing uh, what you're doing. Jesus says he's the son of God. And remember, writing, writing revelation to an illiterate people means you use repetition and a lot of imagery. That's why people are afraid of the book of Revelation. It's not that scary as one might uh, actually think. Jesus calls himself the th son of God because in this letter, authority, asking the question, who, who is in charge, mattered to this church. And Jesus says, my heavenly father, right? God the father is God. I am the son of God. And so the uh, Roman emperor, the Roman politicians, they think themselves of God and their sons they would call sons of God. Jesus is saying, uh, no, I, I, I'm in charge. 
There's not a political entity back then and today that is, has dominance and sovereignty over me. I'm in charge. And then he uses this really aggressive sort of heavy metal language. My eyes are like blazing fire. Like that's not the Jesus my grandma taught me about. My eyes are like blazing fire and my feet are like bronze. This is a reference to the trade guild, right? And a lot of the struggle in their Christianity, in their walk with Jesus, it did happen in the church, but the, the tension was actually, actually it happened uh, at, at work. And, and what Jesus is saying, the fire you use to mold these metals and to make different things for your job to keep food on the table and, and, and your family taken care of, that's what I, I want to mold you and I want to shape you. I know you've got a job that is questionable ethically with the Roman Empire and worshiping false gods and goddesses, but, but I want to shape you and I want to make you. The problem, I think the problem today with our culture, especially in this political climate and with COVID-19 and the CDC and all that stuff, is we really want to be right, but Jesus wants us to be transformed. And sometimes it's difficult to hold both when Jesus is like, I don't really care if you're right or you're wrong, but if you're not transformed, you're going to miss the boat, man. And that's what this early church is struggling with. Notice the words. Like these are blue collar good words that Jesus used to describe this church. Jesus affirms them in their love, agape, servanthood love, right? Love is an action verb. Uh, Faithfulness, right? Perseverance under pressure, or consistency over time, service and perseverance. If, if, if Ephesus in week one loved their, you know, all of their Bible studies inside of a church, um, Thyatira was the opposite. They were out in the community serving, doing manual labor, probably helping their neighbors build stuff, whether or not it was for or not uh, for the Roman Empire. They just loved doing things with their hands. Now, which church is right and which church is wrong? Neither. Both. You need to hold both actually in equal tension. You think about Rockingham Christian Church, right? Because Jesus said, you've grown so much, right, since when we first started this church. Um, Rockingham Christian Church was planted almost about 20 years ago, and some of the folks are still here. Uh, I've my youth pastor planted a church in Brooklyn. Both of my brothers have been in church planning. I've, been, I've done internships in church planning. Like, I get it. That first day, if 15 people show up and they're not in your family, that's a good Sunday, right? And then they start asking questions and they want to get involved and do announcements. And like, I don't, are they a Christian? But you don't have to be a Christian to do announcements. Like, are they going to say, like, are they going to cut? Like, I don't, like, do, like, I don't know how this is going to go. And Jesus says, man, you have come a long way since you launched Thyatira Christian Church. I think that's true of us, Rockingham. We've come a long way. We've been at this, inviting people to journey with Jesus for about two decades now. And I hope, like, I, I hope that means more to you than me, because I've only been here for two years. But some of you have been here a really long time, and Jesus says, I see your love, I see your perseverance, and I see your faithfulness. You're doing a great job. The, uh, the, the Christians in Thyatira wanted to be uh, I'll just steal this word. I don't know if I like it, but they wanted to be um, God reflectors in the sense that they knew they were a small church in a small town. And just be, like, we have this demonic view of church. Like, if I'm in a larger church, that must mean I'm doing a good job. That's like an American westernized way to look at ministry. This is a small church, right? And um, they wanted to be God reflectors. They wanted to reflect the glory of God, the holiness of God. Why? Because they were in a u- unique position that the other seven churches weren't. They were right off two interstates. 
Commerce was going in and out. In Hebrews 1.3, the writer says, the sun is the, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. In other words, Jesus is God. Pretty clear and simple. That's what the Bible believes about Jesus, right? Our culture has to decide if that's true or not, or willingness to follow him. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. This is why you got to read it. Like, I get it. Like, I don't read this book sometimes. I, I get too busy, and that's not my own fault. But there is power in God's word, not to memorize it to be a good moral person and to keep in line, but to know Jesus and to live the ethics of the kingdom of God, not your own sense of morality. He continues, after he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. After Jesus um, was crucified, like the high priest in the Old Testament, he sat down indicating the, uh, his, um, his, his trip to earth and salvation was over, but he sat down at the right hand of God indicating, again, ultimate authority, ultimate control, ultimate um, ultimate power. The writer says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you should look at God the Father. I cannot, if I say I'm the radiance of God, that's arrogant and weird, I am saying that if you look at me, you should, you should see God in me, like I'm claiming to be deity. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The church, us, you and I, we're the reflection of God's glory. When people see us, like, we should be living out our faith enough to go, oh, that person's a Christian. Like, I, I don't buy it, but, I, that, well, okay. And they're like, they're like a legit Christian. And when they come to the office, like, I enjoy being around them, right? So when people look at us, who do they see? If they see Jesus, the hope and the prayer is that they would know that there's a heavenly father who loves them that sent his son to die for them. But it's not easy being a Jesus follower at work, is it? It's hard. Like, you don't want to be that guy or that gal that, you know, brings up religion, like, every lunch hour, or we say really cheesy, you're trying to be comforting, but it just, like a fat guy in a little coat, like, it just doesn't land, right? It's tough. Every week at RCC, we're showing you stories of, of people at our church that are trying to or have stepped into whatever B value that Jesus is giving the church. And today he's giving the church the charge to be holy. Here's Mike Convey's story. Hey, I'm Mike Convey. We're talking about how to be holy this week. Um, so I'd like to tell you how I try to live my life like Jesus. Um, actually, nobody can be just like Jesus. I know I definitely can't be. I'm not perfect. Um, but over the years, um, you know, especially when I get like I get closer to God, I, I really focus on trying to be like Jesus, uh, you know, and trying to give to others when they need it, um, in my house, in my work, uh, trying to spread the word like Jesus. Uh, at work, I had a situation where I actually had a boss of mine come to me and uh, tell me I couldn't talk about God in, in work anymore because I might offend somebody, uh, when in actuality it was really her that had the problem, not my company. Uh, so, you know, I keep trying to spread the word, but really, I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, we're not here to judge, and, and I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned from Jesus. I mean, it, in the end, uh, judgment comes from God, it doesn't come from us. Uh, so, anybody out there, no matter what their lifestyle, whether they're a believer or, or not, um, it's not my place to judge, so I just accept everybody for who they are. I appreciate Mike sharing his story. I think it connects with us. 
at, at some level. Uh, now, now we get into the part that uh, we're going to discover what Jesus has against this church. Uh, it's both in the workplace, in the trade guild, but also in the local church. In verse 20, Jesus continues uh, with the letter. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality eating and eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Yep, this is Jesus. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Did you read that in Sunday school growing up? Jesus, I think, reserves the harshest language for the church in Thyatira. Why? My guess is because Jesus and the Christians there knew about the potential of their influence. Pre-Google, pre-internet, pre-social media, that if a handful of Jesus-loving people, followers of Jesus, would live holy lives, it would turn the Roman Empire upside down. Jesus says, there's this woman among you, her name's Jezebel. That's not really her name. No self-respecting Jewish family in the first century would name their daughter Jezebel. What Jesus is doing is alluding to the Phoenician princess Jezebel in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to use the word progressive, liberal, and conservative. I do not mean them the way we mean them today. All right, let's just be clear about that. Uh, Jezebel grew up in a more progressive liberal family. Uh, Because she grew up in royalty, she probably got an iPhone every Christmas. She pretty much had a posh life. She didn't probably struggle that much. We don't know too much about her upbringing. But as she was coming of age, the Israelites were looking for a king. And in those days, the way they would do sort of peace treaties or peace offerings when two nations would uh, come together on something is that each other's uh, children would marry into the other country's political system. And so King Ahab, the new king of the Israelites, married Jezebel. And wouldn't you know it, (laughs) when you get married, you, you bring your past with you. Who would have thought? Jezebel and her family and where she's from worship Baal, and among other gods, but mainly Baal, and didn't really abide by a lot of strict moral rules or ethics. Again, I'm not saying people that are liberal or progressive don't have any ethics. That's why I had to preface what I'm saying. And then she marries into the Israelite nation who think there's only one God, Yahweh. They have a strict set of, like, a way to live. We called those, what, the Ten Commandments. It was a bit of a culture shift for her. And so she systematically, systematically got the Israelites over time to worship Baal. And they left Yahweh. She, she would set up all of these hundreds of shrines where people would go and, and worship Baal. And she would kill off the Old Testament prophets, telling God's people to repent, to repent. And through her leadership and influence and her title and her ability to make change, she left or, or allowed the Israelite people, invited them into worshiping a God that actually didn't really 
exist. Uh, to call someone Jezebel, I'll let your mind linger. It was not a compliment. Uh, as time went on, her husband died. King Ahab died uh, in a battle with the Syrians. And Jehu was set to sort of take the throne. He was promised if he would kill Jezebel's son, because, you know, it would, the empire would be, uh, his son would be the ne- her son would be the next king. And they wanted to stop this. They wanted to stop the worship of Baal. So Jehu rides into town. Jezebel is up there in the window, depending on, it, it, it's up for grabs. She's putting on makeup. Is it to seduce him or is it to uh, get ready for her impending death? He calls up to her, are you for God or are you for Baal? She ends up getting thrown out of the window and dying and dogs come and eat her. The end. Like, don't read that book to your kids at night. That's the story of Jezebel. It's not a compliment, and there's a, there's a lady, a woman in this church through her other teachers. That's where I think when Jesus says, I'm basically going to kill her children, it's not her kids. What I think he's saying is uh, people that are helping her lead these, I guess you could say like Bible studies, but then you get in these Bible studies and you're like, where are you getting your theology? YouTube? Because it's, it's not in the Bible. And it's destroying the church the way Jezebel destroyed or tried to destroy the Israelite community. And Jesus says some weird stuff. I'm going to throw you on a couch. All right. In verse 22, he says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who, com- who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. That probably is like her other uh, teachers. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know, all like seven churches in Revelation, the Roman Empire, that Jesus falls. Everybody will know I am the one who searches hearts and minds. You can go to church, but I know what's happening behind closed doors, right? And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, here's what this means. <laughs> the trade guilds would have dinner parties. I'm no, I know where this is going and I'm already blushing. The trade guilds would have dinner parties. I loved going to my wife's dinner parties uh, when we lived in Illinois. It was like a step down from a black tie event. Great jazz music. The food was great. Don't judge me. I had two desserts. All right, fat guy in a little coat. But afterwards, we went home. The tension of the Jesus followers was this. What do you do after dessert, essentially? Because everybody would be sitting on, uh, you got to think of like Victorian-ish love seat sort of couches. They'd be sitting on these, they'd be drinking a lot of good wine, eating good food, laughing, just having a really good time. But then the party would be over and the thing would happen. And that's when if people got up and left, those are probably the Christians. Because what's going to happen next is idol worship of whatever God you work for, which is to say whatever God, and then worship also of the Roman Empire. So it had political and theological um, meaning behind it. And so the, the seed or the bed that they were eating on also became the bed of idolatry. And forgive me, but on my job is to teach the Bible. They would have an orgy. And Nero was uh, demonically known for this. All the emperors did this in some fashion. Children would actually would be involved in this. This is the, you're eating uh, food set aside for these false gods, and then you're committing sexual immorality. You're getting shwasted, and you're having sex at your, your company's dinner parties with people not your spouse. Stop it. That's what Jesus is getting at here. 
in this text. In part, that's what he's getting at. Theologically, we would say that Jesus is um, talking about the passive and active wrath of God. When I was a kid, in 17 probably, when I was a kid, my brothers and I would just pound each other to death. And we would do stuff that we shouldn't be doing. My mom would run in and say, I told you, stop doing this right now, or you're going to go to bed early. And um, that's right. <laughs> yep. I think that happens in your house too. Um, and, uh, and so my mom would leave and my brother Nathan and I, will, well, you know, the authority's not in the room. So surely she can't. I mean, no, we know she has eyes in the back of her head, but this is like pre-drone era. Uh, but then we would go do the thing that we shouldn't do. And she'd come flying in and say, I told you not to do it. Now you're grounded for whatever as we got older. <laughs> old, old guy reference. She took away our beepers once. <laughs> Remember that? It is possible to be loved and be in trouble at the same time. This is what is happening. This is what happens to us. This is what ha- is happening to the church in Thyatira. What they thought, their bed of, or their like little Victorian love seat, what they thought that provided was a quality of life. They had a good job. There was really good wine. Uh, there was really good food. They had good friends. Like, all, all great things you get to enjoy on the weekend after a long, hard uh, week of work. Like, like, I get it. But the bed or the seat, the love seat that they were sitting on, that they thought would give them a quality of life, actually is their own condemnation. Just because God is not in the living room <laughs> doesn't mean he can't see us. And so sometimes we think we're getting away with stuff that... God will never bring it up. The other beautiful uh, thing about the nature of God is that we can, we can be bad in the presence of love. Our behavior uh, does not deter God from loving us. Um, but love is not the only characteristic. I, I would argue, and we can argue about this over coffee. That would be great to talk to you. Uh, I would argue that God's main character, the biggest characteristic, number one, is his holiness. It's the only time in the Bible where the character of God is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy for the Lord Almighty. Holy, 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 right? Who was and is to come. And I struggle with that. Like, because my job is not to tell you to behave better. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. That's what Dr. Phil does. My job is to tell you to repent and to follow Jesus and to trust Jesus. And that's what Jesus is trying to do with his church. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.25, God gave them over to their sinful, desire, sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity. The way God wires me is I don't put up with injustice. When people hurt, whether or not they believe the same thing as I believe, when there is a perceived injustice, I get angry. And I'm kind of getting angry at God in this text. Like, I'm like, if I'm God, I'm like, what are you doing? Come back. Like, I sent my son. I thought we had this loving relationship, and God lets us go. I don't know. Does that make God a bad parent? I mean, can you force a kid to do something that, like, ultimately they're not going to do, or they're going to do it so they can, like, just, you know, avoid your punishment, but then when they get older, they're just going to do it again? He says... He says they're involved in sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. Man, this is heartbreaking. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. I'm glad that um, Paul doesn't get specific there. 
because we, we believe different lives. And worshiped, uh, and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever and ever to be praised. Amen. If your, uh, if your teenager asked for the latest iPhone, I don't, like, what are we at, 80, iPhone 87 or whatever, and you got the iPhone for your kid, and they wake up Christmas morning, they're like, oh my gosh, this is exciting. And, uh, and then <clears throat> they get uh, sort of somber and a little bit pensive, and they say, mom, dad, I... I, I think I want to take it back for like a flip phone. Can I do that? Instinctively, like, or intuitively, we know that like, because Americans, because we're so hung up on quality of life, which means wealthy, comfortable, and very few headaches, we would say, are you kidding me? Who turns in things of greater value for something of lesser value? We do. We do. Church, we do it. Christians do it all the time. And I'm so glad Jesus is right, because he's talking to Christians, right? You can't call Jesus hypocritical, because he's not going after non-Christians. He's talking to us about the church. Like, I've done it before. They're just doing it with sex. You, when, when, you, when you hear the phrase sexual immorality, you need to think of the word uh, pornea in the Greek. It's our English word for porn. Pornea is the, everyone has this at home in the, probably their kitchen. There's like a junk drawer in your kitchen where like, I don't know, there's like tape and like a beeper from 1987 and, you know, index cards that you never own. The only thing you care about is like your grand, great-grandmother's recipe and you pull it out once a year for Thanksgiving. Like, everybody has some form of that. That's what Paul is talking about. You guys are just going buck wild. You're into everything. Like, stop. Repent. Come back to me. I know that you're, that you're totally digging Jezebel's teaching, but your pleasure, your pleasure will be your condemnation. Repent and be holy. Let me ask you a question. What, what, do, you, what do you find yourself drifting away from these days? I mean, it's hard. It's hard living through a pandemic. It's, it's hard maintaining the rhythms we had, even the healthy rhythms we had before the pandemic. But what about, like, I'm a pastor, you're at church, so let's keep it Jesus-y. Well, like, what have you drifted away from? Bi personal Bible reading? I mean, I have. I'll just be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I look at this like, this is my job. Once I write my sermon, I'm done for the week. I'm, I'm just being real. I'm being honest. Prayer? Financial giving, supporting our church to extend the mission of Jesus? Why did you not get in a life group? I'm not here to condemn. I'm just here to ask really hard questions. Because if I don't, do you have anybody else in your life that will? It's really hard. It's really hard to stay faithful to Jesus in this season. It's really hard for the first century Christians to stay faithful to Jesus because all of their non-Christian friends, all of their buddies, it's just easier just to go with the flow. It was back then, it is now. Nothing is new under the sun. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, Peter writes, he's talking about the, the, not the church, the church is, and that'll matter to you in a second. You are a chosen people you are, I love that the Bible reminds us of who we are because we're so forgetful. That's also why church is like an everyday, like every seven day thing. You are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is what he thinks of us. 
RCC, that you may declare the praises of him, like you actually share your faith with other people, who call, the God who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, once you were not a people, you did not belong to the people of God. Now that begs the question, do you care about Christian community? If you don't, then that verse doesn't really affect you. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter calls these seven churches a holy nation. What is true about this guy, Peter's reality, that he can tell and remind the church, even when he's writing his letter, you are a holy nation. Third person, plural pronoun. I never thought I needed English until I went to Bible college, right? You are a holy nation. There's this small church in this small town that Jesus said, you need to stop sinning. You need to be holy. I've positioned you at the, at the crossroads of two major Roman highways. And I reserve the harshest language for you, but not really for you. So don't be that insecure with it. But for all of the churches in the Roman Empire... And they stepped into the way of Jesus. And I can't help believe that this little church put the Roman Empire on its head, which allowed guys like Peter to say, you, Roman Empire Christian churches, (laughs) you are a holy nation. Why should you care about that? Because in Jesus' church, you had Romans, you had uh, people with Roman citizenship, uh, non-Roman citizenship, you had men, you had women, you had elderly, you had young adults, you had kids, you had Greeks, you had Jews. They were brought together. They were bound together by their diversity, but they were brought together and led by the one commonality that they had. Their political views? <laughs> no. No, their preferences about whatever they think about COVID-19? No. What brought them together was Jesus. Jesus was their leader. And I can't, again, I can't help but wonder if the faithfulness of this small little church through the commerce of going in and out of these uh, interstates put the Roman soldier, uh, the Roman empire, turned it on its head. This is the reward of a church that is holy. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give, here it is, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter, language of the trade guild, and will dash them to pieces like pottery, language of the trade guild. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Give authority over the nations. I love substitute teachers. And you're laughing because you know why I love them. When there's a substitute teacher, anything goes. They don't know any better. (laughs) And uh, there's that kid, right, that would say, hey, can I go to the bathroom? And then two minutes later, can I go to the bathroom? Can I go to the bathroom? And pretty pretty soon the the substitute teacher is out of control, like, or class is out of control. And then there's a knock at the door, and it's the assistant principal. And he or she comes in and says, I want to speak with you, 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 come here now. And he looks at the substitute teacher and says, Mr. or Mrs. Brown, I apologize for the way my students have behaved. If anything else happens again with any other students, come call me and I'll take them to my office. And he shuts the door. Everybody knows that guy's in charge. Jesus, 
You, 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 you. Come follow me. Come follow me. Your president is not in charge of your life. Your politics are not in charge of your life. Uh, the government's not in charge of your life. Your school system's not in charge of your life. Jesus says, I'm in charge of your life. And then he says in his way, and I'll get to the verse here in a second. I know I'm going over, but I'm feeling the groove. Then he says, look what I've done for you. Here's what Paul says in Colossians. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over the cross. Here's why you need to care about this. In the Roman century, in the Roman Empire, when a nation defeated a nation, they would bring the defeated army in, and all of the townspeople would be super excited. And they would look up to the king and praise the king, showing confidence in the king that you told us we didn't we you know we could sleep at night. We don't have to be afraid. Thank you, King, whatever your name is. And Jesus is saying, I have done that on the cross. Look, look at what I have done for you. All of the things that you have done in your sin, in your immorality, in your brokenness, in your hatred for me before you became a, a Jesus father, look at everything that I've done for you. Look, look at all the things that have been done to you. Maybe you've been raped, physically abused, emotionally abused, verbally abused. Maybe you've just been abandoned. Maybe you're just really insecure and you hate yourself and relationships and friendships are really hard for you. Jesus, look what I have done for you. I'm parading it right in front of you to show that I have ultimate authority, ultimate power. Come with me, follow me, repent and be holy. In this little church in Salem, New Hampshire, right next to somewhere, I-93, we could turn New England upside down on its head. 